Welcome to Korean True Crime with me, your host, Mimi Mizigo. If you have an interest in Korean true crime, then you've probably heard about the Frog Boys. This case is one of the most notorious cases in South Korea. You may also know that this is one of the most frustrating unsolved cases in the world. You'll soon understand why. Five children went out to play, but none would return home. For over a decade, nobody knew what happened to them. But then, something is found that only adds to the mystery. Thank you to Vix Mack, Lala, Jay Colomo, Ben Jones, Ashley Rigby, William White, Sue Vivian Bremen, Blanca Blanca, Jiwon Edwards, Selkie, Nico, Elijah Hancock, and Anamanam for their support on Patreon. Thank you for voting on today's episode topic. If you'd like to join my patrons, you'll receive ad-free early access episodes, weekly Korean true crime vocabulary hinting at the content of the next episode, exclusive access to vote on future episode topics, and the occasional bonus content. There are no tiers, so all patrons gain access to everything. If you'd like to support me with your love, find me on social media sites at Korean True Crime. Sources are available for free on Patreon. Today's episode contains discussion of the death of children. Listener discretion is advised. On the morning of March 26, 1991, at around 8 a.m., six elementary-aged boys met to play together. Despite it being a Tuesday, the boys did not have school because it was a temporary holiday for citizens to cast their ballots for local councils across the nation under President Rote U. Election days are red days, or public holidays, which provide people with time off of work, allowing them to engage in civic duties. The boys all live nearby one another in Sangsao Daegu. Many documentaries about this case refer to Daegu as a village or a small town, but while Daegu was still developing, the population in Daegu, the third largest metropolitan city, has stayed relatively the same in the last two decades. In 1991, 2.2 million people lived in the city, whereas in 2002, 2.1 million people lived in the city. This area was mostly residential, mixed with industrial factories, and still is to this day. Some of the buildings are still standing, but most of the villas have been replaced with larger apartment complexes, and the military base has since moved. It's difficult to compare a developed nation to one still in development, which Korea still was in 1991. But despite the city's humble appearance, it was a busy community that was rapidly growing. The boys were all schoolmates at Sangsa Elementary School, a school that still exists to this day. Woo Chol-won was the eldest at 14 years old in 6th grade, followed by Cho Ho-yun, who was 13 in 5th grade. Kim Young-gyu was 12 in 4th grade, Park Chan-in was 11, and Kim Jong-sik was 10, both in 3rd grade. Their ages may vary by up to 2 years lower because these are their ages under the Korean age system, which ages you on the first of the year. As the boys played, they were joined by their friend Kim Tae-ryong, who is also in the third grade. With Taeryong's arrival, the friend group was complete. The six boys were not only schoolmates, but lifelong friends who enjoyed playing together frequently. 
On days just like this, when the sun was shining through the chilly March air, they were particularly excited to spend time outside and play together. The boys played outside of Hoyan's family's villa until a neighbor, who wanted some peace and quiet on the holiday, complained that they were being too noisy. The neighbor told them to leave and go play somewhere else. Taeryang, however, had to stay near his house and went back inside to eat breakfast. The remaining five boys, Cholwan, Hoyan, Youngyu, Chan-in, and Jung-shik, decided to head towards the mountain to continue playing. On their way, they ran across Hoyan's older brother, who was riding his bike around the area. He joined the boys as they collected tin cans for their adventure collecting salamander eggs at the mountain stream. The boys parted ways with Hoyan's brother and continued towards the mountain. As they were about to begin their ascent, Taeyang caught up with them, having received permission from his mother to play with the others a little bit longer. However, he sadly declined to join them when he learned of their plan to climb the mountain. His mother had set strict rules about him wandering too far from home, so he reluctantly made his way back. Little did Taeyang know, his decision to leave would ultimately save him from the tragic fate that awaited his friends later that day. Woryong Mountain was a renowned landmark for its towering height, narrow rock ridges, and vibrant azalea bushes. While designated hiking trails are relatively safe, the mountain could pose a threat to unsupervised elementary school boys, like the five who set out to explore it that day. The rugged terrain could be hazardous to those inexperienced in hiking. Despite the potential danger, the boys knew the mountain well and had played on it countless times. With youthful enthusiasm and carefree attitudes, they ventured onward with their tin cans, unaware of the looming danger that awaited them. It was close to 9 a.m. when they reached the mountain and Taeryang parted ways with them. A neighbor, Kim Soonam, was returning from voting that morning when she watched them pass by towards the mountain. The boys were carefree, joking and laughing as they made their way towards the mountain. One of the boys had expressed concern about returning home within two hours, but the group continued on. Living less than 15 minutes away from the mountain, the boys had pretty easy access to explore the area. Around 12 p.m., two classmates of Chorwans from the 6th grade, Kim Hyung-yul and Lee Tae-seok, crossed paths with the group of boys on a hiking path near the entrance to the mountain. They chatted briefly before the two classmates left to return home for lunch. Before they parted ways, Chorwan disclosed to them that they were not actually searching for salamander eggs, but were instead searching for bullet casings. This may raise questions. Why were they referred to as the frog boys if they were looking for salamander eggs? And why would they search for bullet casings on a mountain? When the case was first reported on in the media, the reporter misunderstood salamander as frog. The words are not similar, but salamanders aren't common in South Korea, so it was simpler to refer to them as the frog boys, since many people may have been confused by calling them the salamander boys. The word for salamander is dorongnyong, and the word for frog is geguri, which, fun fact, is also the same word for the sound frogs make. But the boys weren't actually looking for salamander eggs anyways. They had told the 6th grade boys that they were actually going to search for bullet casings on the mountain. At this time, the 50th Infantry Division of the Korea Armed Forces had a shooting range on Waryang Mountain. Bullet casings could be found littering areas far past the actual range. Korea was ruled by a military regime at the time and soldiers were often seen in public. Children had a curiosity about the military and the weapons carried by soldiers, so it was a popular pastime for children to collect bullets on the mountain. 
At 2 p.m., a woman residing at the base of Waryong Mountain testified that she saw the five boys walking up the mountain. However, this conflicted with the earlier timeline of the boys' arrival at the mountain, which was 12 p.m. It's possible that the boys stayed within close proximity to the base of the mountain and the woman spotted them searching for bullets. Another boy who also lived at the base of the mountain added a disturbing detail. Ham Sung Hun, a fourth grader who attended the same school as the boys, did not see the boys climbing the mountain that day, but heard what he believed to be the boys' scream. Sung Hun resided in military housing near the military entrance to the shooting range at the bottom of the mountain. A little after 11.30 a.m., just before lunchtime, he and his friends were playing on a different part of the mountain when he heard a gunshot followed by terrifying screams coming from the mountain's summit. According to Sung Hun, the scream lasted for a considerable amount of time. Though his friends did not hear the screams, Sung Hun recalls the sound to this day as a chilling and urgent expression of fear. It was not until the boys were considered missing, though, that he mentioned the screams to authorities, given that no one else had heard them. Both Zhang Shik and Young Yu's mothers had an unnerving experience at around 11.30am when preparing lunch. They felt a sudden sense of crisis, as if their hearts were shrinking, and had a premonition that something terrible had just happened. When the mothers met up, they agreed to scold their sons for being late, but they were only told that their boys had gone to search for salamander eggs on the mountain. They weren't sure where they were. They searched for their children in the neighborhood to no avail. As time passed, they became increasingly worried, and after waiting until 6pm, all of the boys' parents decided to search the mountain themselves. After an hour of searching, they were unable to find the boys and the sun began to set, prompting them to call the police at 8pm, 12 hours after the boys left that morning. Please don't judge the family harshly that they waited so long to involve the police. Police relationships with the public is complicated in Korea. Many Korean families would rather deal with problems on their own than involve the police, which brings public ridicule and shame. Your image and reputation is incredibly important to people in Korea, so they would rather search the entire mountain themselves prior to calling the police. And often, the police is less than helpful, which we have sadly heard in many cases. This one is not an exception. The police were called, and the officers who arrived helped search the mountain for the missing boys until 3 a.m. the next morning when the search was called off without any success. The police, however, didn't consider the missing boys as missing persons, but instead labeled them as runaways throughout the entire case. The parents had to take matters into their own hands by creating and distributing missing person flyers all across town. The media picked up the story quickly because it was unprecedented for five children to go missing together. However, many false sightings of the children were reported, but none of them proved to be credible. For instance, some claimed to have seen the boys on a nearby bus carrying buckets of water with tadpoles in them, but no one else on the bus could confirm this. Numerous theories circulated about the boys' disappearance. The most popular was that they were kidnapped by a gang that forced poor children to beg for money. Another theory was that North Korean spies had abducted and killed them as a way to infiltrate the military base. Some even suggested that the boys were abducted by a UFO. The most bizarre theory was an old wives' tale that lepers were responsible for the boys' disappearance. It's time for a tiny side story about Korean history. In Korean history, and to this day, there are shamans and fortune tellers. These are not always the same, but some shamans may perform fortune-telling rituals. In Korean, a shaman is a mudong, and a fortune teller is a jeong jeng yi. 
A shaman is a spiritual guide and has deep connections to Korean land and ancestry. Fortune tellers perform rituals or partake in trying to predict the future and analyze the present and past. These practices predate major religions like Buddhism and Christianity, and their acceptance in modern Korean culture varies. However, in the past, certain shamans spread dangerous misinformation that eating the liver of a young child could cure chronic illnesses. This belief led to a tragic case of child murder in North Korea, where a man killed children to consume their livers to cure his cirrhosis. In relation to the missing boy's case, there were rumors that the patients at a nearby leprosy medical facility may have killed the boys to eat their livers, which was an unwarranted and unfair accusation. Although the media speculated on the disappearance of the boys, the police chose to focus their investigation on the assumption that the boys ran away from home due to issues within the families. Despite having no concrete evidence to support this theory, it's worth noting that the families of the five boys were not struggling financially, nor were they having any problems within their households that would suggest the boys had a motive to run away. Moreover, those who knew the families couldn't provide any negative feedback regarding how the children were treated. After the boy's disappearance, one of the boy's fathers had a haunting dream about his son on the night they disappeared. In his dream, it was pouring rain. He looked outside of the home to find his son standing in the rain. He ran to his son, was shouting his name, but his son turned and without looking back, ran away. The father woke in a cold sweat and couldn't shake the feeling of dread. He was terrified for what happened to his son. As the days went by, the parents began to fight amongst themselves. They were so consumed by grief and worry that they were starting to blame each other for the boy's disappearance. They yelled and argued, trying to express their feelings of regret, anger, and despair. In their distress, they pushed each other away, making it even harder to find their sons. The police told the parents that the children could return any day, and they just needed to wait longer. But as that time passed, the stress and frustration mounted. They couldn't bear the thought of waiting any longer and not knowing where their children were. They were lost without them and didn't know how to continue on. Jongshuk's parents received a call at their home and their hearts leaped with hope, but the message they heard was anything but comforting. A man's voice spoke in a menacing tone. I have the children. They are suffering. Two of them are very sick. The caller demanded a large sum of money and instructed the parents to drop it off near Tegu Station, Terrified and desperate, Jongshik's parents contacted the police and rushed to the station, hoping to catch the kidnapper. They waited for an hour, but no one showed up to claim the ransom. The parents decided to become heavily involved in the investigation. For the next three years, all five fathers quit their jobs to focus solely on the search for their children. The fathers participated in a television series that covered the investigation and allowed them to air their grievances against the police. One of the largest issues was that the flyers the police distributed labeled the children as runaways, not missing children. The fathers believed that this mislabeling delayed the investigation and search efforts. During the television program, a call came in that they believed could be Jung-shik himself. All of the parents were listening, and Jung-shik's mother believed that she heard her son's voice. However, the call was abruptly cut off, and they were unable to trace the caller's number then. They anxiously waited for another call, and when it did come, the woman who answered the phone said that Jungshik was crying and calling for his mother. His mother was brought to the phone, but after a brief moment, the call was disconnected again. After the program, they were able to trace the call, but it turned out to be a cruel prank 
by a boy not much older than Zhang Chik himself. This was just one of the many false calls that they would receive, as the large bounty was placed on finding the children brought in countless hoaxes and false leads. The boys had gone missing on March 26th, and by May 5th, the president had mobilized thousands of military and police to search the mountain and surrounding areas. Despite the thorough search, there was no signs of the boys, and hope for their safe return began to dwindle. As the search continued, a special investigative headquarters was established at the Daegu Metropolitan Police Agency in July. Over the next five years, 300,000 people searched the 48 mountains, 1,000 religious facilities, 11,000 homes, and interviewed thousands of people who had ever seen the boys once. Unfortunately, none of these searches yielded any productive leads. The parents of the boys were frustrated with the lack of progress in the investigation. They believed that many of the searches were simply for show and that the police truly didn't care about finding their children. Despite the challenges facing the investigation, many Koreans rallied behind the missing boys' families. Large companies such as Pohang Iron and Steel Corporation, Gukman Bank, Korea Tobacco Corporation, Busan Taxi, Kia Motors, Dato Pharmaceutical all contributed to the case. The Korea Tobacco Corporation even included pictures of the missing boys on their cigarette boxes, which really got the pictures out there. In addition to corporate support, individuals also showed their support in various ways. A movie titled Come Back Frog Boys was released in November 1992, and singer Park Sung Mi wrote a song for the boys and donated a portion of her earnings to the investigation. A fairy tale about the incident was also written titled Where Are the Friends Who Went to Catch Frogs, which offered money to the families, although it didn't bring in significant funds. On the year anniversary of the boys' disappearance, the family held a press conference. At this meeting, they met a man who introduced himself as part of the press, but Cholwan's father noticed that he would see this man more and more after this day. The other parents began seeing this man as well. A mysterious man who was always watching, always writing in a notepad. When one of the fathers confronted him, he claimed to be a member of the intelligence agency, but the parents began to doubt his motives. Was he there to protect them? Or was he gathering information for a different purpose? The parents found themselves at the receiving end of unwarranted visits from the police, who grilled them about their whereabouts as though they were suspects in the case. It was as if the authorities were trying to intimidate them away from the case. They felt like they were being attacked from all sides, from the police who were treating them like suspects, from the mysterious man who was following them, and now from the media. They felt like they couldn't trust anyone and that everyone was out to exploit their tragedy for their own gain. As the years went by, some of them turned to alcohol to numb their sorrows, drowning themselves in liquor as a way to cope with the unbearable weight of their loss. Young Yu's father, in particular, struggled with his grief. His once healthy complexion turned to a sickly blue hue, and he was unable to sleep without the aid of sleeping pills. Over time, his dependence on the pills took a toll on his health, and he began to waste away before his family's eyes. Despite his family's best efforts, he eventually succumbed to his illnesses, leaving behind a family who had already lost so much. The tragedy of the missing boys had claimed another victim, a father consumed by his grief and the overwhelming sense of loss that never left him. The surviving parents clung on to their own theory of what they thought happened to their children that day. They believed the boy who claimed to have heard the gunshot and scream. In a moment of frustration, one of the parents boldly posed a question during an interview. 
Would the police even bother investigating a military? But the military base remained untouched, and the possibility of investigating it seemed increasingly unlikely. The parents knew all too well that when the military is involved in the case, it's often impossible to uncover the truth, no matter how much evidence is presented. The military's actions only added to the parents' confusion and desperation. A military official contacted the families. They asked for all the parents to come to the base late at night without informing the police. A commissioned officer let them onto the base. They were taken inside of a large military tent and there were soldiers waiting inside. A military official greeted them and explained why that they were called in in such a secretive manner. The parents all say the same weird thing. The officer said they called them there because he would grant them a superpower. Yeah, you heard that correctly. He said that he had called them there because he would grant power to one of the parents to locate their children. Young Yu's father recalled that the man put both of his hands on the sides of his head and pressed his hands roughly against his temples. He said that his wife stood up and frantically began running outside to search the mountain. The officer said, follow her and you'll find your children. Soldiers followed them closely behind as well, and his wife screamed out in the darkness, Our children are here! Our children are here! But there was nothing there. His wife was slowly losing her grip on reality as grief overtook her, and the officers and soldiers stood around them, manipulating them into believing they could suddenly know where their children were. The families left without knowing why the military would mock them in such a manipulative and sick way. Young Yu's father particularly was disturbed by the way his wife was manipulated into running out in the darkness and searching for her missing child. He knew deep down that this was all a cruel joke, a sick game played by those in power. The military's behavior only reinforced his suspicion that they were involved in his son's disappearance. In January 1996, five years after the boys went missing, a man in a black suit approached Cholwan's father. Because of his appearance, Cholwan's father believed that this man was from the government. But the man was Kim Gawan, a professor of psychology that had been following the case for a very long time. Criminal psychology was relatively new to Korea, but this man had studied in America, which made a lot of people trust his judgment. He suddenly made the declaration that the children were buried under Jungshik's family home, all based on the fact that Jungshik's father's alibi had a three-hour gap in the first three hours of the day the children went missing that morning. The criminal psychologist was charismatic and seemed very sure of his findings, so the police turned their suspicions towards Jungshik's father. Jungshik's father agreed to let the police excavate his home, which they did. They tore the entire foundation of the home up. As the media descended upon the home, the professor was seen confidently walking around the house, pointing out locations where he believed the children were buried. But despite tearing up the entire foundation of the home, no evidence was found. Jungshik's father was left devastated and felt like he had died along with his son. It was clear to everyone present that it would have been impossible for someone to have buried five children under cement and bricks in just three hours without attracting attention. The criminal psychologist's reputation was ruined, and he was even taken into police custody for his own safety as the crowd turned on him. He ultimately accepted punishment for his destruction of the home, which was uninhabitable now, and the trauma that the family had to endure once again. Jungshik's father succumbed to a stress-related illness and passed away at the age of 40, shortly after this incident, leaving Jungshik's mother the only remaining family member to mourn her son. 
This tragedy brought all of the families closer together as they provided support for one another. However, the loss of Zhangshik's father and Youngyu's father took a significant toll on the remaining three men, who struggled with alcohol addiction and depression for years to come. In 2002, 11 years after the boys went missing, a man named Omugun was hiking with a friend on a mountain trail, collecting acorns. While walking about 3.5 kilometers from where the boys were thought to have disappeared, O stumbled upon loose earth with clothes sticking out of it. Upon closer inspection, he found that there were bones inside of the clothing. And when the forensic team arrived after the police were called, they discovered the bodies of five young children tangled together in a shallow grave. The excavation of the crime scene was publicly televised, which I find to be highly disrespectful to both the families and the deceased children, as their remains should not have been shown on television. The parents' arrival at the scene where their children's remains were found was a heart-wrenching moment. They immediately recognized the clothing and braces on one of the children's teeth, and it became clear that their hope of finding the boys alive was gone. It was a somber and devastating realization for the parents who had been waiting 11 long years to find out what happened to their children. As the remains were excavated, there was something strange about the way the bodies were found. The deceased young Yu had his pants and shoes turned up over his shoulders with the sleeves and pant legs tied together. They were all knotted together in a way that a child couldn't have been able to do. Someone else would have needed to tie these knots and have been significantly stronger than them. As well, inside the clothing were unused bullets. Despite this finding, the police still officially announced that the suspected cause of death was hypothermia after being lost on the mountain all night. This announcement was met with outrage from the families, the communities, and the media. The location where the bodies were found was near a hiking trail that led directly to the bottom of the mountain, an area that the boys knew well. Additionally, the mountain was pretty well lit at night and the boys would have been able to see the path down. To further demonstrate this, a television program reenacted the boys' trip from their home to the crime scene with children of a similar age, and all of the children were able to safely return to the bottom of the mountain even in the dark. It's important to note that despite hundreds or thousands of people searching this part of the mountain, the shallow grave where the boys were found was not discovered until 11 years later. Yet, the police say it was hypothermia? The forensic team at the crime scene were police officers who didn't have any expertise in evidence preservation or crime scene forensics. They were digging out the bodies with chisels and pickaxes. They were organizing evidence into piles, lumping it all together. There was no preservation of the crime scene or of the evidence. It was being mixed together and manhandled. The evidence was even placed on recycled newspapers, which contaminated all of the evidence as well. Experts agree, after the fact, that they lost valuable evidence in the hours the police made a mess of the crime scene. As well, there were experts in forensics and crime scene evidence collection available, but they were not called to the crime scene. It was a conscious choice to not involve experts who knew how to do this. Korea was not a country without resources. They had experts in this field that were in the city that could have been called to preserve this evidence. They would have respectfully dealt with the bodies. Instead, the boys' bones were all mixed together, piled up on newspaper like it was a market stall in front of the parents, tossing bones and clothing without care. When they organized the skeletons, they started sorting them by type of bone, not by which child the bones belonged to. When the chief of police made his announcement that the boys died due to hypothermia, a journalist asked the chief of police, so you're saying the boys' bodies weren't buried? And the chief said, no, 
The lowest temperature that day was three degrees Celsius. The wind chill would have lowered that temperature and the bodies were huddled together. The police explained that the unusual clothing covering their heads could be due to erratic behavior seen by someone experiencing hypothermia, which may also have led to them erratically tying knots in their clothing. The knots, however, were quite unusual and were very difficult to create even by adults who attempted to recreate them. Many people, including the victims' families, did not believe this explanation. During the documentary In Search of the Frog Boys, Che Won Sok, an expert in emergency mountain rescue from the Korean Alpine Federation, discussed his team's assessment of the area following the police's announcement. He was surprised to find that the location where the boys were found was less than 100 meters from the mountain's parking lot. Despite the cold weather that day, which was only a low of 5 degrees, Che and his team determined that it was highly unlikely for the children to freeze to death on the mountain without attempting to descend the mountain or even call for help, which could have been easily heard by people in nearby apartments. Despite all of the scientific evidence, the parents believed in common sense. If five children died of hypothermia, their bodies would have been found on top of the dirt, completely unburied, on the ground. If a body is found on top of the dirt, just covered by time, the bodies would be found with evidence of animals feeding on them. Also, they would probably be found in the searches. However, none of the bodies had evidence of animals ever touching them. It was clear that these bodies had been buried. The parents began to suspect the police wanted to close the case quickly because of the hypothermia conclusion. But now, with evidence of bullets found inside the children's clothing, they were even more assured that the military had something to do with their children's death. The specific bullets came from an M16 rifle, which was used at the military shooting range. This weapon has an effective range of one kilometer, but the boys were only found a little over 100 meters from the range. The public shared suspicions that the children may have been shot, but without any more evidence, it was impossible to investigate the military further. Military officials did hold press conferences admitting that the bullets were from the shooting range, but they denied any involvement in the boys' death. They actually kind of went out of their way to disprove it. They claimed that there were no drills on the day of the boys' disappearance because of the holiday, and all of the soldiers had the day off. However, commissioned officers were allowed to visit the range at any time, even on holidays when the soldiers were off. According to the Korea Alpine Federation's investigation, there was a report of an officer firing his rifle that day to use up leftover bullets, but the military refused to cooperate with the investigation and would not reveal the officer's identity. The children's remains were subjected to analysis for injuries. One of the children's skulls had large holes on both sides, which was not caused by a bullet as there was no associated bone fracture. It was possibly due to blunt force trauma. The examination of the other boys' bodies revealed sharp cuts in the bones. Initially thought to have been post-mortem damage, further examination revealed that these were pre-mortem made by some kind of tool, not by an animal which was determined after the evidence was sent to an American anthropologist. Some of the boys' cause of death was most likely due to being struck on the head with a sharp object, likely through their clothing that was tied over their heads to cover their eyes. Blunt force trauma caused by a weapon led to the large holes in the other skulls, which were the likely cause of death for most of the boys. The circumstances surrounding the location of the boys' deaths remained a topic of disagreement, 
Given the passage of time and the lack of preservation of the crime scene, it was difficult to determine definitively whether the boys were killed on the mountain or not. However, forensic analysis was able to shed light on whether the boys' bodies had been buried in their final resting place from their time of death or if they had been moved thereafter. The analysis of the soil and bone position confirmed that the children were buried there in the shallow grave where they were found and had undergone decay over the course of the 10-year period in that same soil. The fact that the bones were found in the correct anatomical position suggests that it's very unlikely that the bodies were moved at all. It's possible that officers and civilians who searched the area may have missed recently displaced dirt due to the vegetation and flora in the area. The dense flora could have made it challenging to spot a recent gravesite, especially if it was covered up. Despite the recent discovery shedding new light on the case, time was running out as the statute of limitations had only a few years left and the initial investigation had yielded very little information to help solve the mystery. However, the parents were finally able to hold a funeral for their children two years after the discovery of the remains on March 26, 2004, which was the 13th anniversary of the boys' disappearance. The boys' ashes were scattered in the Nakdong River, offering the family some closure. Unfortunately, the statute of limitations then expired on March 26, 2006, leaving the boys' case unsolved and the truth of what really happened to them unknown. I must say that there's no justice found in this case. You might have suspected that because it's an unsolved mystery, but the parents believe it was a cover-up by the military. The boys died, and for the next decade, the police made sure that they never found justice with negligent investigative work, harassing the families, the inability to work efficiently under the military regime of President Oteu, who ruled a military dictatorship disguised as democracy. If a military officer was visiting the shooting range on the holiday and had shot a child by accident, who would investigate that accident? That military official had the power to make it all disappear, even by telling the police to just cover it up. But it is admirable to see the dedication of the parents to finding the truth, which kept the investigation alive, even without the police's help. The never-ending love of the parents gives me so much hope for the world. It isn't often you see such love when researching such horrific stories. This case is undoubtedly one of the most frustrating cases in the world. The solution appears to be simple, and a comprehensive investigation into the military base could have confirmed or disproved this theory. Sadly, this investigation never occurred, despite the fact that the mourning parents were harassed and ridiculed by military officials. The most tragic aspect of this case was the unfair treatment of the parents. Not only did they lose their children, but they were also portrayed as neglectful by the media. They received fake ransom calls and then were subjected to fake calls pretending to be their children. The police failed to take the case seriously and refused to acknowledge that the children were missing. The military added to their anguish by pretending to have answers and making late-night calls to mock the families. To make matters worse, a criminal psychologist who was a disgrace to the profession re-traumatized a family by excavating their home, leaving them with an unlivable space and an inescapable financial burden. Tragically, two of the parents passed away due to the immense stress caused by losing their children. 
without ever being able to put their children's remains to rest. They may have been spared the heartache of seeing their children's remains treated like trash at a yard sale, while the police maintained that their children, who had blunt force trauma injuries to their skulls, died of hypothermia less than 100 meters from the road. Sadly, on April 22nd, 2022, Kim Young gus father passed away at the age of 79 due to a cerebral infarction. It's important to hold our loved ones close, tell them how much they mean to us, and keep them in our hearts. As the anniversary of the children's disappearance and murder approaches, I hope to visit the memorial that was built on Waryong Mountain with my husband soon so that we can pay our respects. I hope you enjoyed today's episode topic. If you'd like to vote on future episode topics, join Korean True Crime on Patreon today. Thank you for listening to Korean True Crime. If you'd like to hear more, follow the show wherever you listen and be sure to leave a review. If you'd like to send feedback, find me on social media sites at Korean True Crime. Dame do payo. See you next time.